of the entire congregation, I want to say the choir, we're glad you're not at the beach. <laughs> we appreciate your ministry. I tease you sometimes, but thank the Lord for you is what we do that's in our hearts. We appreciate your ministry. David, thank you, sir. Thank you. Ladies over here, appreciate it. I had a mom. She didn't say it to me, but she said it to someone who recounted it to me. <clears throat> she was lamenting the fact that uh, she has a little one uh, who's of the age to be staying in church. And she was worried fiercely about that. And uh, comment was, children wiggle, they talk, and who knows what else they're going to do. And that word got to me, and it had been a while since I've said anything. Uh, Mom and Dad, we are happy to have your children in church. We're happy if they go to children's church. We're happy if they're here. Um, and I've been asked over the years of my ministry more than once, when children talk or wiggle or whatever, doesn't it distract you? And my answer is no. No, and I'm sincere in that. I'm glad to have children here. Thank God for them. Children not just in the home, but children are a gift from God. Why would they not be welcome? Just because some man is in front of a group of people speaking, why would they not be welcome there? I cannot imagine that. Thank God for children. Now, I suppose I have been pressed about that a little bit. Yes, but Pastor, come on. There, there have to be some things that would... Um, grab your attention and, and, and take your attention away from what you're doing. And I had given a whole lot of thought to it, and my standard and stock answer now is, yes, there is one thing that would probably distract me, and that is if we had teenagers sitting in a balcony throwing airplanes off from the balcony. That probably would distract me. Uh, but otherwise, welcome. God bless you. I thank God for our children, all of them. That said, would you take your Bible and turn with me, please, to John 17. <clears throat> Last three weeks, we've been talking about what is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Jesus had been asked by his disciples, Lord, teach us to pray. And the Lord's Prayer, that we re, that's how we refer to it, was given in response to that. And in that, Jesus taught his disciples some areas that he wanted them to pray about. I trust that uh, we have taken note of those things. And I hope that you will go back and read through 
Matthew 6, 9 and following again and again and again and incorporate that into your own prayer life. I want to do that and I want you to do that. Read it and incorporate the things that he said to pray about into your own prayer life. This morning we turn just a little bit in another direction. Jesus taught his disciples what to pray about and I want us to look for a couple of weeks at what Jesus prayed for. And for that, we come to the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. Before we look at it, would you join me, please, in a word of prayer? Father, teach us to pray. Put in our hearts and in our minds and on our lips the things that you instructed your disciples to pray for. And may we pray for those things. And make us mindful that the prayer life of our Lord Jesus is something that is unique. It's hard to find a word to describe that. But help us to take note of the things that you prayed for and you prayed about. And I pray that you would also help us to incorporate these things in our own praying. I ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. John 17 is one of the most treasured chapters in all the Bible. Listen for just a couple of moments, if you will, to what some others have said about John chapter 17. Martin Luther observed of John 17, this is truly beyond measure, a warm and hearty prayer. He opens the depths of his heart, both in reference to us and to his father, and pours them all out. It sounds so honest, so simple. It is so deep, so rich, so wide, no one can fathom it. Philip Melanchthon, another of the reformers, said, There is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or on earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. Bishop John Charles Ryle said, This chapter we have now begun is the most remarkable in the Bible. It stands alone. There's nothing like it. An old Scottish preacher remarked, The best of all sermons in chapters 14, 15, 16 of John is concluded by the best of all prayers in John 17. John Knox, the eminent Scottish reformer, for as long as he was ill, up until the time he passed, had John 17 read to him every single day. The Gospels frequently speak of Jesus praying. 
He prayed while being baptized. I'll not mention the scripture references for all of these. I've, I have them here in my notes. If you want them, I'll give them to you later. He prayed while being baptized. He prayed while beginning his public ministry. He prayed all night before selecting the 12 apostles. While praying, he was transfigured. While praying, he ceased to breathe. Vocal prayer was the habit of his life. And yet, strange though it may seem, only the briefest mention is made of the content of his prayers. For example, in Gethsemane, he prayed, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. From the cross, he prayed, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? John 11, uh, by Lazarus' grave, his prayer was equally brief. If we gathered all of the recorded contents of Jesus' prayers throughout all of the Bible, if we gathered all of the, his prayers... They could be recited in less than 10 minutes. We observe also from the four Gospels that more often than not, Jesus prayed for his disciples and not with them. Now, to some, that may seem to be a rather strange Suggestion on my part, and some may think it open to question. And yet it is true when it was time to pray, you read through the New Testament. Very often we find these words, Jesus withdrew himself and prayed. As he was praying alone in another case. And again, when he had sent them away, he departed to pray. When it was time to pray, more often than not, Jesus withdrew to himself. Now, notwithstanding, he did teach his disciples to pray. That's what we were looking at the last three Sundays. <clears throat> we do refer to it as the Lord's Prayer. And I've said to you, I, I have, I'm on no campaign to change that. And yet, those words in Matthew 6 were not words that, that Jesus could have prayed. He could never have prayed about the forgiveness of sins the way he suggested his disciples pray. He could never have prayed that way. Nonetheless, we do refer to it as the Lord's Prayer. All of these things taken together, the fact that Jesus prayed as a habit of his life, that he often retired to be alone when he prayed, that we have so little of the content of his prayers recorded for us, and finally, that he taught his disciples to pray more by example than by giving specific instruction, Matthew 6 notwithstanding. All of these things taken together seem to me to make Matthew, excuse me, John 17 stand out. This is different. The themes of, uh, of John 17 
are so woven together that it is not easy to outline this passage of Scripture. We can, however, distinguish movement and change of thought sufficiently to come up with a few suggestions. For example, in verses 1 to 5, we see Christ and his Father. Christ and his Father. The key word here is glorify. In verses 6 through 19, we see Christ and his disciples. The key word here is kept. In verses 20 through 26, we see Christ and his church. And the key word here is one. What a lesson. He wanted his church to be one. He said his disciples would be kept. And he prayed for the Father to glorify himself through the Savior. We can also observe some great doctrines in John chapter 17. Salvation in verses 1 through 5. Preservation in verses 11 through 16. Sanctification in verses 17 through 19. And glorification in verses 20 through 26. Now this morning I want to look briefly at Christ and his disciples. Excuse me, Christ and his Father in verses 1 to 5. Christ and the Father in verses 1 through 5. When these first five verses are reduced to their essentials, basically Jesus is praying, Father, glorify thy Son. There are two aspects of this glory, and we'll see these as we move through these verses. Let's begin in verse 1, John 17, verse 1. These things Jesus spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee. This is a prayer, and it is reasonable to consider where it was uttered. Where was this prayer prayed? If you'll take, keep your Bible open here to John 17, but look back, if you would please, to John 14, verse 31. 14, 31. They're in the garden. Verse 31 of chapter 14. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise and let us go from here. So in the garden, he says to his uh, disciples, Arise, let us go from here. And then we come to John 17, but we have to go further for another indicator of location. 18.1, 18.1, John 18, verse 1. When he had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of Kedron, where there was a garden into which he himself entered and his disciples. So uh, they, they, they leave, excuse me, I, I misspoke a while ago. They, they left the upper room and went to the garden. They left the upper room, 1431, and moved to the garden. Somewhere between leaving the upper room and coming to the garden, John 17 was prayed. Now, it doesn't seem appropriate that this prayer would have been prayed while this body of men were just walking through the streets of the town. 
It has been suggested, and I think it is a reasonable suggestion, that as this group of men made their way to the garden, they passed the precincts of a temple. Perhaps the outer precincts. And that would have been an appropriate place for this prayer to have been prayed. So that brief note about the location. More important is the invocation. Jesus addressed this prayer to his Father. That was an expression of our Lord of two things in particular. First, it was an expression of a relationship. He was the Father's Son. And that was his claim to be heard. He didn't need to come in another's name. He didn't have to at all. This was an expression of a relationship. Second, it was an expression of love, of confidence, and of submission in the Father. You know, you stop think about it. Father's a beautiful word, isn't it? What sweet communion Jesus and his Father had in eternity past. So from the location to the invocation to the occasion, he says the hour has come. Again, verse 1 of chapter 17, the hour has come. Now, it's interesting that there is a remarkable series of passages which have to do with the hour or the time. Jesus uses this expression at least five times that expression, the hour, is said not to have yet arrived. The hour has not yet come. You find that expression at least five times. At least five other times, the text speaks of the hour of being as being at hand. The hour is at hand. In each instance where the text speaks of the hour being at hand, it is a reference to the cross. It was imminent. To men, the cross appeared to be an instrument of shame. That's how it was used in that day, an instrument of shame. To Christ, it was a means to glory. Then the supplication reveals this to us. Notice he says, Father, glorify thy Son. The word glorify suggests exalting or exaltation, elevating. Jesus is saying to his Father, I want my death to exalt and elevate you. Now how could his death on the cross exalt or elevate the Father, I believe the first three verses of John 17 is a prayer for the resurrection. It is a request, and we'll see these things in these verses. It is a request that the Father support the Son on the cross. And afterward, bring the Son out of the grave and return the Son to the Father's right hand. You'll find all those things embodied in these first five verses. 
All of this to bring to a triumphant conclusion the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this, the Father would be glorified. In supporting the Son and bringing him out of the grave and returning him to the Father's right hand. Notice the last phrase of verse 1. That the Son may glorify the Father. That was the overarching principle of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. To glorify his Father. Verse 2 continues the thought of glory. Even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. The point is that giving eternal life to men is an outworking of the glory of which the Lord Jesus speaks. Look at it just a bit more closely. Notice he says that all authority was given the Son. That's universal in its scope. The authority was given to the Son for the express purpose of his conferring eternal life. But this conferring of eternal life was not done indiscriminately. Look at verse 2 again. Even as thou gavest him. So the Father gave the Son authority over all mankind. No exceptions. Universal. Why? That to whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. Those given by the Father to the Son, the Son will give eternal life. All whom thou hast given. The word given is important to John. In the Gospel of John, he uses the term 75 times. Given. And in this chapter, he uses it 17 times. To all whom thou hast given. It is a favorite word of John. Would you look at what was given in verse 2? First of all, the Son was given authority. Second, the Father gave the Son a specific group of people. So the Son had authority. He was given a specific group of people. And third, the Son gave to those people eternal life. Child of God, you were the Father's gift of love to his Son. What a thought. You know, most of us from time to time have difficulty selecting the right gift for someone. My daughter has a birthday this weekend. My wife and I have spent a good deal of time talking about what we're going to give to her. As a child of God, we were the Father's gift to His Son. That's a hard thought to get over, isn't it? You were God's gift to His Son. Verse 3 speaks about eternal life. And this is eternal life, 
that they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. The only true God. I believe that's always been one of the great messages that the world needs to hear. There's only one true God. Someone said, when the Lord, Je- when the Lord Jesus used those words, the only true God, he made a dead-end street out of every religion, out of every cult, out of every ism, schism, asm, and spasm. And he did. There's one true God. You know, having eternal life is not knowing a God. Having eternal life is not even knowing about God. It isn't even believing that there is a God. For even the demons believe. So believing about God has nothing to do with eternal life. Eternal life isn't being baptized. Eternal life isn't joining a church. Eternal life isn't doing good works. Eternal life isn't doing the best that you can do. Eternal life isn't being sincere. Having eternal life is even different from having eternal existence. Everyone who's ever lived has eternal existence. Even those who do not receive Jesus Christ have eternal existence. But eternal life comes through a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4 tells us that Jesus completed the task for which he came. Look at verse 4. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. How did the Son glorify the Father? By his words and by his works. Everything that was done by the Son of God was for the Father's glory. And he says, I have finished that work. He had not one regret. He never said a word that he had to apologize for. He never did one single thing that he wished that he hadn't done. He never made a mistake. That can only be said of deity. He faces death now with no sense of failure, as some modern critics would have us to believe. He faces death with a sense of completion. I have completed what the Father gave me to do. He did not die disappointed. He had completed all that his Father had given him to do. Verse 5, And now glorify me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. At the time of the Incarnation, Jesus did not give up his attributes. In his incarnation, his deity was not lessened one particle. His incarnation involved the voluntary non-use, voluntary non-use of certain 
of his attributes. The Apostle Paul spoke about this in the book of Philippians. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Often we sing hymns, and I suppose more at, at holiday seasons without really thinking about the words than any other time. Remember Charles Wesley's great Christmas hymn, Mild he lays his glory by, born that men no more he die. He laid aside voluntarily some of his attributes while he was here on this earth. He did not give up his deity, nothing of the kind. And now he's praying for the restoration of that glory that was his before the incarnation. After commenting on verse 5, one expositor in making an application simply said, Jesus was homesick. He was ready to go home. The greatest missionary effort of all of time had been completed. It was now time for him to go home, to be returned, to be reunited with his father. There are several things which grab my attention in thinking about this prayer and, and, and thinking about giving something you take home with you. Two things, very brief. Number one, Jesus prayed. He was omnipotent. He needed nothing, and yet he prayed. How much more ought we to pray individually and collectively? He was the Son of God. He had need of nothing, and yet he prayed. How much more do we need to pray? May I say to you, I believe that one indicator, one indicator, there are many, but I believe one indicator of the strength, of the spiritual strength of any church is the group of people that meet together on Wednesday night to pray. That's one thing that claims my attention as I think about this. The second thing that claims my attention as I think about this is one of the striking things about Jesus' prayer is that there isn't a cliche found anywhere. I am guilty, and I think all of us are guilty of falling into that habit of using vain repetition, cliches, say the same thing. When he prayed, there was not a cliche found anywhere. I trust that the Lord will enable me to examine my own praying and that he will enable you and stimulate all of us to examine our prayer life. He taught his disciples how to pray. He gave them a list of things in Matthew. Now we are able to see some of the things that Jesus himself prayed about. And I want to encourage you to read John 17. We're going to spend at least two more weeks in these verses, picking up at verse 6. May the Spirit of God bring these lessons 
about spiritual strength. And prayer embodies that. And about the way in which we voice our prayers. Are we in a rut that we just use the same phrases and the same words time after time after time, giving no thought to them? Let's pray together. Father, you hear your children pray. You know when we do pray and when we don't pray. You know whether we pray selfishly or we pray for your glory and your kingdom. Your name be hallowed. I pray, our Father, you would speak to us about the way that we pray and about our needs. I ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. 1987. What a year. (laughs) August of that year, I met with... uh, Search committee here at Wake Chapel. Uh, they invited me to come up and preach, and I preached at a church where a former pastor was serving over in Sanford. <clears throat> and uh, God in His grace, uh, through the search committee, invited me to come to Wake Chapel. Uh, I was familiar with North Carolina. <clears throat> I grew up in Winston-Salem. Went to college there. Uh, left to go to seminary in Dallas, Texas, and spent almost 25 years there. Not all of it in seminary. <laughs> no. Uh, it only took four years in seminary. <laughs> Thank you, dear. Uh, She's kept me straight for 50-some years, so uh, keep it up, sweetheart. On the last Sunday uh, of August, uh, Louise and my family were sitting over here on the second row. Uh, Bob Coates was in the pulpit. And at the close of that service, my family... We joined the church. Uh, So that was 87. That was a day or two ago. You folks I don't know how to say it. Gracious beyond words to me and to my family. Kind. We loved you when we came here. Believe God had called us here, so we loved you before we ever came here. But I want to tell you, we love you a lot more today. Thank you. The flowers on the pulpit this morning were a small token of my family's appreciation to the church family.
We do love you folks. God has been gracious to us. We owned our own home when we lived in Dallas. We came here and moved into a parsonage. And uh, never lived in a parsonage. Didn't know what to expect. I loved it being close, and I loved the chimes. I still love those chimes. Um, I stood out there the other, uh, what, eight, nine, ten days ago, and watched that huge claw just crunch. And it, 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 um, it brought some, some things to my heart that I wish, you know, hadn't been so. But uh, in God's plan for Wake Chapel Church, the Parsons had to go. But uh, about nine years, eight or nine years anyway, one day the uh, chairman board trustees came to me and said, um, Pastor, would you and Louise like to build your own home? And I said, yes, if that's agreeable with the church. And he said it was. And so we built our own home, and we have lived there. But I've missed being next door. You know, a lot of times, I'm a night owl. And a lot of times I study at night. Um, And when I was living next door, it didn't make any difference. It was 11.30 or 1 o'clock. If I needed a book, I could come over and get it. Um... We discontinued that habit when we moved. (laughs) But we thank you. We love you. Again, you have been gracious to us beyond anything that we could even think. We thank you. Trust that there is some little touch of our thoughts that are expressed verbally to you in the flowers. Thank you. I told Louise I wouldn't say much, and I've already said more than I told her I would say. (laughs) Joe Fork, come. Deacon of the day. He will pray for us. Then we will go our way. If you have to travel tomorrow on the holiday, please... Do so with great caution. God bless you. Joe? Pray with me, please. Father, we have heard through your song this morning is that the ransom was paid and Jesus paid it all. We've also heard about prayer. And it has been said that the definition of prayer is turning our focus on you. So we pray that as we have gathered this morning, that that has been our focus today, shutting out the world distractions and turning our focus on you and your son that you sent who paid the price so that we can live eternally with you. We pray this morning also for our mission of the week in Dura International. We pray for uh, Hannah Shaheen as he leads this ministry who... Uh, strives to plant churches throughout the Middle East in an area of the world that is hostile towards Christianity. We just pray your blessings on Hannah and that ministry that you would continue to bless his ministry in that part of the world. Go with us now as we go our separate ways that as we go out into the world that we may be salt and light in the community and people would see Jesus in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.